Oh, this is a warning. <laughs> <laughs> We're in trouble, Tony. <laughs> this is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Paul Vachure with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with Tony Prescott. And we're, we're talking now with uh, Mark Bloomberg, who was a speaker at our BCBT 2015 summer school. Uh, Mark, you, you wanted to, or you were linking in your talk and also in the research that you have quite some time, sleep and the development of the, of the motor system. So, and then someone's also telling us that, that sleep is doing a lot more than just sleeping. Mm-hmm. So what's really the link here between the development of the motor system and sleep? Well, what you see in early development, one of the things that marks sleep in early development is the fact that you, first of all, you're sleeping a lot more. And and even more, when you're young, you're having a high proportion of REM sleep, what we also call active sleep. And what makes active sleep active sleep is the fact that you are engaging, you have, you have a, an activated nervous system, you have... A loss of uh, the ability to uh, have high muscle tone. But even though you have low muscle tone during active sleep, um, infants are producing a lot of motor activity in the form of these myoclonic twitches, just twitches for short. And so what happens during these these twitches is that you are activating um, muscles, you're moving limbs, you're moving eyes, you're moving whiskers, and you're, there are sensory consequences to those movements, which, as uh, we've shown over the last 10 years or so, cascades through the nervous system. And so the question we've had is what, you know, although these twitches have largely been thought of as remnants of dreams, you know, the, the, the old wives' tale of rabbits ch- um, dogs chasing rabbits in their dreams, what we think is happening is, in fact, that these, these twitches are not epiphenomenal, are not byproducts, but are products of the nervous system that play a role in self-organizing or bootstrapping the sensory motor system to create the fundamental structure that makes wake movements possible. So now... What are the basic properties of these twitches? The basic properties are, um, first, that they are discrete. That when you look at twitching in slow motion as we have, you see that individual joints are activated at the same time. In some animals, it can, the flurry of activity can be so great, it's been con- they've been confused with seizure activity. Um, or people think that, that all these movements are happening simultaneously. But in fact, they're highly, highly discrete. We've, we rarely see simultaneous uh, twitches in multiple joints. It's a rarity. Another feature is that they are occurring against this background of high muscle tone and and of low muscle tone, rather. And so that becomes important when you're thinking about producing a movement and getting feedback in return of that movement. You want it to happen in a situation where there's a, a high signal-to-noise ratio, where the where what the signal you're getting back is clear. Um, the metaphor I like to use is a submarine where people are doing echolocation or, or sonograms. Um, um, Sonogram? No. What is it called? Um, you know, sonar. Sonar. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, word choice problem here. Um, when you do sonar, you know, like every movie that's ever been done with a submarine, the mm-hmm. captain tells everybody to be quiet, and then mm-hmm. they send out, you know, a single ping, and mm-hmm. they get a they get a, a, a feedback from that. I think that's what's happening during twitching. You're shutting down the system, and then you're sending, you're pinging your mm-hmm. your limbs, you're pinging your whiskers, you're pinging your eyes, and you're getting feedback in response to that that then allows you to make sense. Of uh, of how your your mm-hmm. body is constructed, 
And then finally, the twitches themselves have spatiotemporal structure. That is that they, there are certain movements that are joint movements that are more likely to happen than other joint movements. And we've chronicled some of those changes across mm-hmm. development. So all of these things together tell us that twitching is not some you know mere random activation. It's a highly structured, mm-hmm. uh, highly organized system. So there's, there's a trajectory of twitching um, through development, is there sort of in that? It, does it become more complex, or is it just? Yes, we've seen that the that the movements become. You you end up with more multi joint movements. You end up with more complex movements. Over the six day differences that we've looked at, from two days of age in a rat to eight days of age, there is a documentable change in the structure of the twitching. But now, can we? So, what what's the lowest level of uh, at which a twitch can be expressed? It's a single muscle fiber. It's a group of muscle fibers. It's a, it's a synergy between multiple muscles. Yeah, great question. What's the lowest level? Um, we don't know. So to move a limb, it probably takes at least many muscle fibers. We've, we don't think it's probably, at, we do not think, we, we suspect it's not at the level of single muscle fibers. It's probably at the level of muscle groups. Um, but just due to the problem of measuring individual muscle fibers, we haven't been able to technically work that one out. Mm-hmm. Okay, but then would, and then how far up would that go? Would it go to the level of the movement of a whole limb, like mm-hmm. I move my arm and my hand and my fingers? Right. Or is there an upper bound to what you would call a twitch? Um, well, a twitch is a, is, a, is a movement of any given, in, in any given direction for any given joint. But you can have a bout of twitching in which you can have multiple joints, even across multiple limbs, that occur in a very rapid sequence. And we've used about 50 milliseconds as our cutoff for defining one twitch to another twitch to another twitch as defining a bout. And when you look at that very fine time scale, I mean, 50 milliseconds is pretty short. What you see is there's certain sorts of movements that are, are, very, are very likely. So one thing that you might have is that your shoulder might bring your fist towards your body of your right limb. And very quickly after that, you may have the same, some, same sort of movement in your left limb. And those sorts of movements, what we call homologous movements, a movement towards the body of your right, movement towards the body of your left, that happen with a great frequency. And that can be attributed to certain aspects of the spinal circuitry connecting the right to the left limb. Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to dissect out those sorts of highly probable and low probable uh, events in, in these, in these uh, more complex twitches. What do we know about the um, development of the, uh, the the motor pattern circuits that are underlying some of this? Are they developing during this period, or are they more or less in place? I mean, they're greatly developing. So initially, even across the early ages that I was talking about today, you know, the spinal cord plays an enormous role initially in the production of a lot of these movements, especially in the fetal right. situation. By the time these time, time these animals are born, you're already getting brainstem contributions. Uh, to that as well. So you're now adding a brainstem motor component to your spinal motor component. For the purposes of twitching, that's all you have. But even for the purposes of wake movement, at those ages, the cortex is not playing any role at all, as far as we can tell, in the production of movement. The cortex is mostly receiving information and laying down those early structures. They do not have a lot of motor outflow. So for the most part, this period of infancy in rats, which is roughly the last trimester in humans, this is largely a period of um, brainstem control of movement, very little cerebellar control directly. Cerebellum doesn't really do a lot of direct motor control. Um, so the, the brainstem is doing most of the heavy lifting. Are we talking about the first 10 days of, of rat? Uh, Roughly, maybe yeah. the first week or so. Yeah. So they're mostly in, in the, the nest, not moving around very much, presumably. They do move. I mean, they, they, the, the movements that they have during wake, their eyes are closed. Yeah. 
Uh, the visual system is limited. They're getting some light, but not a lot because their eyes are sealed until they're 15 days of age. Their, their interactions are mostly huddling, so they're, they're interacting with their litter mates. They're diving into the huddle. They're coming out of the huddle. And then they are um, seeking the mothers for, for, for milk and, and protection. And uh, if you put them outside the nest, they can engage in some motor, some locomotor activity, but it's it's fairly limited at those ages. They're dragging themselves along, aren't they? Yeah, sort of, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's not until they're about, you know, weaning is a rough, you know, when they actually get independent. But around 21 days of age, they're they're very ambulatory and they're moving as you would expect of an adult, pretty much. But to qualify to qualify as a twitch, we we are talking about let's say a time window of about 50 milliseconds duration, but also I I would assume there's there's a lack of coordination because otherwise I can make a goal-oriented movement and say, oh, that's just a sequence of twitches, right? So there, there, there must be a minimal level of, let's say, coordination across multiple twitches. So where, where do we draw the boundary there in terms of the coordination across twitches? Okay, well, what defines a twitch, the, when I said 50 milliseconds, I meant the difference between two twitches, mm-hmm. two independent ones. The twitches themselves are very fast on the order of five milliseconds, mm-hmm. but it... It's hard to know when you start, when you stop, those sorts of things. Some of the movement is active and some of it is passive in return. Um, the, the, they're easy, it's easy to distinguish a wake movement from a sleep movement. I think I showed you some examples today. Um, when you see a baby or a rat when they're waking, what you see are very high amplitude movements. They're, the movements of the limbs are typically, they have some relationship to one another. It can be an alternating movement. Uh, it can be a retraction of both limbs. It could be a yawn. Um, it could be kicking, and those sorts of movements are are happening when the muscle tone is high and the, you, the, the nervous system is in a different state. What distinguishes a twitch has to be the nature of the movement itself, the f- how quick it occurs, and also the background activity, on the, the low muscle tone, that general sense of relaxation. Anybody who has a dog or a cat and you're, or a baby or a person and you're watching them sleep, what you'll notice is, or if you've ever been on a bus and you've tried to sleep in an upright position, you feel terrible when you wake up and your neck has, you've, your head has fallen over and you're, because your neck is completely relaxed. And that is what happens in REM sleep. It's that relaxation of the muscles that defines REM sleep in addition to this, this sort of this phasic, this fast activity that occurs with twitching. Um, all of those things under normal conditions have to occur for you to say that it's a twitch. But, but to say it's REM sleep, there also has to be some oscillatory pro- property in the brain? I mean, is there a... Not necessarily. Okay. I so mean, there comes a point when you can measure EEG activity, and that EEG activity has, bears more of a resemblance to waking than it does to, to, uh, um, to slow-wave sleep or quiet sleep. Um, so waking and REM sleep have very similar EEG patterns, right. but it's not rhythmic. It's highly desynchronized. Um, so the, there is, you know, there are rhythms that occur during, during active sleep, but they're not the ones we normally so think the, of. So there is a l- little risk of circularity here if you define uh, REM sleep in terms of exhibiting twitching, and then you want to say twitching happens during REM sleep. No, it's also with the muscle atonia. So the muscle atonia is, the, yes. is, is key for that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, you need, you need more than one component to define a state, and right. those are the two. But now we have plenty of other examples of, you know, of brain activity patterns that we see during REM sleep that we okay. don't see in other states. Yeah, even in these pups? Yes. And, and they also do the sort of passive sleep as well as the active sleep? The, what's called quiet sleep? Yeah. It's very brief um, in these animals, and it's very difficult to distinguish from quiet waking. Right. Because they're so immature. And so they, there comes a point 
around 11 days after age when, when quiet sleep can be defined on the basis of EEG activity. But prior to that age, it's very hard to just a quiet animal is just a quiet animal and, the and, and their eyes don't open. <laughs> so you, you don't have, you don't have a lot of the, the, the components that we have in an adult. Yeah. But in some sense, uh, if, if we follow your, your sonar example, mm-hmm. now if we, if we remove muscle tone, and I see the twitches. In some sense, this is, if you want, the central nervous system talking to the skeletal muscle system. Mm-hmm. And then you could say, well, the muscle twitch or the twitches I observe are, if you want, the lowest level of resolution the brain has available to really talk to the skeletal muscle system. And as such, this would be, let's say, a movement primitive. Okay. Would you be happy with, with that interpretation or you look at it differently? Is it more like a random driving of the skeletal muscle system in a way that is not related to actually the control of the skeletal muscle system? Well, so now, so, so we've, we had a little bit of a discussion in the talk about, you know, primitives and what they mean. And, and so let me just, it's important for me to state um, where I come from philosophically on that issue. So um, I come from a school of thought that, um, you know, my training and my background and is in uh, um, an area that's, you know, it's it's a fundamental developmental perspective. And the framework that's adopted by people like me is called the developmental systems theory perspective framework, however you want to call it. And the point of it is, is really to sort of to get away from using certain types of words that that we think are can be traps to understanding the origins of any given system. And for people like me, I mean, I'm very interested in where things come from. And the problem with saying that something is a primitive is that it immediately evokes the notion that you get it for free, that you get it without developing it. But there is no aspect of the nervous system. There is no aspect of a biological system that does not first develop. So when you say primitive, you have to, you have to, so I would have to throw it back at you and say, well, what do you mean by a primitive? Because even those, the, the, the fundamental wiring up of that system has to occur through a variety of genetic, epigenetic, and activity-dependent processes so um there are no primitives in a well, nervous system I, but i gave you a definition right because i told so, you it's the lowest level of res- resolution in which the central nervous system can talk to the skeletal muscle system if you want to define that as a primitive then we've now defined primitive in a way that it's typically not defined well, I know, the way it's typically defined is to say that the the wake movements the goal-directed movements mm-hmm. certain things that animals do uh, alternating leg movements for mm-hmm. example central pattern generators that these are primitives but as people are now showing more and more, even central pattern generators develop. Mm-hmm. So the thing that used to be called a primitive has now become a developmental mm-hmm. product. And I think that that's, I think it's healthier to stay away from those sorts of things. But, you know, we to the extent a, we that need you a word. Use, <laughs> okay. What's that? We need a word. We have to say, this is the lowest level of resolution that cannot be further divided. It's like an atom, right? No, but I think I agree with Mark here that, that, that it's relative. So you could, you could say that from the point of view of the cortex, you might have a motor primitive. Uh, instantiated in the brainstem, but from the point of view of the brainstem, you have to assemble that you know, yeah, out of components, which may be at the level of, of muscles. Right. And so, and then at the muscle level, you could you know could break it down further. So yeah, so I think it, you can use primitive, but you have to say w- what you mean primitive with respect to what. No, no, but uh, that's what I was saying. Right, this is the lowest level at which the central nervous system can drive the skeletal muscle system. I'm not sure that's right. true. So, no, but, but so, we, we so let's, let's, let's explore that for exactly. a second. So very, very early in development in rats in the fetal period, that would be true for the, maybe that's true for humans as well, but earlier in the fetal period, um, 
muscles can, can it's called myogenic activity. You can have muscle activity that occurs without any neurogenic, any neural, any brain, any central nervous system input. And as you as you get as you move move through development, the spinal cord is doing a lot of this activity on its own. And then eventually, as I said earlier, then the brainstem starts to do more. So the there could be a motor primitive very early in fetal development that's just at the level of muscle. Then you could have another motor primitive mm-hmm. that's at the level of spinal cord, another one at the brainstem. And then at that point, I think the concept of a primitive loses its force. You know, at that point, I, I would rather just say what we are describing rather than using a word that has such a history, you know, so that's, that's no, my bias. No, but there's bias. a problem, and I think we, we do need a word, and then we have to invent it right here, right now. Uh, because that's <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not good enough, I think, because what we have to deal with is the question, are we driving these muscle groups or muscle fiber groups in some random way, as our sonar example would be. Look, I'm exploring my environment. I'm exploring my muscle, muscular system. I'm picking it. I get stuff back randomly. Or am I driving it in a way that already anticipates controlling that same system? And now I have to drive it in a way that is, that is specific to the control I will perform later during wakefulness. And then it must be a unit, a basic unit, that I can assemble into behaviors. Well, so I'm going to argue for a more iterative process in this whole, in this whole thing where you start off with these and they can even be random movements, and there's some evidence in fetuses that they, they start off as when they're spinally generated that they look random, um, and they change over time. And then the question becomes, why do they change? And, and when you start getting into the issue of any kind of a loop, you know, anytime you have a, an output and an input, you can't say what causes what at that point. So you, know, you, have, you have an activity pattern, you have a motor, motor outflow, but then you get, you get information about that motor outflow, and that modifies the next iteration of that of that system and so the system keeps getting com- more and more complex over time so what initially starts random starts to look structured and eventually becomes goal directed and and then the process of well what does that mean to be goal directed and you now we're talking about how you produce models of the outside world inside of your head that allow you to control your limbs in very very productive ways and now we're getting into the issues of you know all the computational processes that are involved we're only beginning to understand that system from the perspective anyway that I'm taking with this. And so I'm trying not to, I'm trying to avoid certain assumptions that come out of non-developmental work Mm -hmm. because I want to try to understand how the thing develops Mm -hmm. without being bound by concepts that are outside of that, of that perspective. So, um, I guess that that one of the differences may be that, that we are interested in, uh, assembling control systems for things like robots, yeah, and there the the notion of primitive is is very useful. So mm-hmm. you can say I, I have a some device that I know can control the arm and move it to a certain place. And therefore, I can just at a higher level just command the position I want to move my arm to, rather than worry about how I coordinate the different joints to make that movement. Right. And that and that definition of primitive is really useful then. In, in, in robot control mm-hmm. and I guess it, it, it's an interesting question as to whether that's useful then to think about in terms of hierarchy of brain systems you know there may be for instance people often think about the superior colliculus as being a device that can generate uh, head and eye movements to a particular location in space so that a system talking into the colliculus just has to give it a coordinate right mm. no I, I think that's absolutely right so the, the point I, I, I think my challenge back to the to the to the robotic the robotics perspective is that if you have the notion of a primitive, if that becomes a useful concept in robotics, 
but it turns out not to be a useful concept for actual biological systems, then might there be some value in thinking about how you get to a primitive and how you imagine the developmental process, and might that play a role in creating robots that are more flexible and adaptable? Um, so I can understand that the, the, the concept of primitive is useful, perhaps, and, and safe, from my perspective, as long as you say that it's a primitive as of time t. As of this yeah. moment, it's a primitive for that. But then it doesn't tell you how you got there. But it's a point, right? To, to agree on the fact that these primitives are acquired yes. is not a problem, right? Yeah. But it is a stable representational structure that helps you to perform a certain operation. And it's also a commitment to saying brains are controllers in the end. They control the skeletal muscle system. Well, I guess I agree with you on that point. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I wish that all people use the word primitive the way you're using it. Unfortunately, I'm happy they, we un found each other, Mark. Un 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 unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, people have used the word primitive to do a lot of mischief. Uh, sure. And, mm -hmm. and it's the mischief I'm trying to avoid by... By being cagey mm -hmm. about the word, mm -hmm. you know? okay, but but at least we resolved this obstacle now. I right? think we so have. We're, we're ready to move on. Yeah, exactly. So this Cheers. is very good. But now, <laughs> through development, do you see that twitches, the twitching behavior becomes more stereotyped in an acquired fashion? I emphasize yes. this, so it, it loses variability over development. We don't know. We we, we did do a um, we had an entry entropy measure for the multi joint uh, activity, and we did find interesting relationships between how entropy and the frequency of movements changed over development. So um, it appeared as if uh, the, free, the, 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 twitch, the, the multiple joint movements that were composed of multiple twitches, though the entropy, that is the organization of that system, uh, it became more ordered over time, over a very short period of time. So that it appeared, and, and the ones that were more ordered became more frequent. Mm -hmm. over time. So there seems to be an interesting, almost like a selectionist, like a Darwinian process and choosing which types of movements are going to persist to the next day or the next week of mm -hmm. the animal's life. What we don't yet know is when you start getting into systems that uh, are much more highly developed, much more complex, capable of really complex goal-directed reaching movements, locomotion, you know, much more complex things. We don't have a good sense yet of how well twitching looks in mm -hmm. those situations. I have a, a colleague sent me a, a video of a, of a racehorse who was uh, appeared to be in REM sleep. I mean, it was, the horse was on its side and it was, it was moving its legs, you know, in this beautiful synchronous racehorsey kind of a way. And racehorses rely heavily, more heavily on their hind limbs than they do on their forelimbs for propulsion. And so then the question is, well, you know, somebody might say that the racehorse was dreaming about its race. And I would say that it was engaging in spontaneous activity during REM sleep that mm -hmm. is, is sort of a way of training up its or practicing its mm -hmm. system. But we don't, that has not been documented. Right. Those two things could be the same. They could be, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So if there was some cortical activity that went alongside with that. And, but here we get into this really interesting debate that I'm having with some colleagues about whether or not the motor cortex plays any role at any age in the production of twitching. And I right. would argue there is no evidence mm -hmm. that the cortex plays a role in twitching. But it might not even be motor cortex. It might be visual cortex, so the animal's visualizing you know, the track. Yeah, but how do you go from the visual cortex to motor control? without engaging the motor cortex. Oh, well, you go via the brainstem, sort of via the basal ganglia. Yeah, no, there is no, there is no evidence that, that any part of the forebrain is playing a role yet, but right. it, it remains to be proven. But I, I, my argument to the, my clinical and other sleep research friends is to say that um, we need evidence. There is yeah. no evidence right yeah. now. And there is actually, there are recordings from the visual cortex which also support that claim. So. Right. Yeah. But now in development, do I lose muscle fiber that I'm not twitching enough? 
We don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. we do know that twitching is happening close to the age that you start to lose poly-innervation poly of, of muscles, but um, uh, there's never been a direct link mm -hmm. between those. Okay. But that's but a potential functional role as well, then. It is. I mean, and, and, and it's yeah. another, there's another one as well, which has been established for movement, which is that if you don't move your limbs as a fetus, your joints will uh, fuse. Right. And so it's important for maintaining uh, healthy bones and mm -hmm. healthy joints when you're early, very early in development. Mm -hmm. You need to move them or they fuse and then you're out of luck. Yeah. But now you, you, you contrasted your, your view on, on, on the role of twitching in, in sleep with the idea of efference copy, yes, right, or corollary discharge, and you you don't at least in, in the way you presented it, you, you seem to see a, a difference between the two, right? So what would be that difference between twitching patterns, the role of twitching in the developing nervous system, and the role of an efference copy? Well, so the the, the results we have so far suggest that that what distinguishes movements that we make when we're awake. This is just. Oh, the data are only for young animals, so it's, it's important to be clear about that. But the movements that uh, we, an infant makes when it is awake um, actually involves, you know, when, you ha when, you, when you're moving your limb in the air or whatever, um, the sensory information that could be coming back from, from that limb, the proprioceptors and, and so on, they are being, the information from that is being shut down, prevented from making its way into the brain. Whereas when you twitch during your sleep, that information flows through freely through. And we take that as evidence that uh, that's why twitching is distinct and why it could be important. Mm -hmm. um, now, in order to gate that information when you're awake, we posited that this corollary discharge process is engaged. And we now have direct evidence that that is the case. If we, if we inhibit that corollary discharge phenomenon from occurring, we now allow information from during wakefulness to move into the brain from the wake movements. So that's one aspect of how the corollary discharge system can modulate sensory inflow into the brain during uh, sleep versus wake. But that's just one, uh, one feature of all this. I think of this as, you know, this is very much what you would expect on what people do with what people have found in adults, where the, the, the amount of reafference, the amount of information coming from waking limbs is very, very low when we're awake. And I was at first a little bit surprised by this. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm people on the pod, you know, who listen to the podcast, podcast can't tell this, but if I'm moving my arms in, in the air and anybody can move their arms in the air, they can even close their eyes while they move their arms in the air. Um, they have a very strong sense that they are moving their arms and they have a sense that that's sensory, that something sensory is happening. But motor control people who I've talked to about this, say that not only are you not, the reason why you have that, what they would call an illusion of that, is because you have a computational model in your brain which is telling you that this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be feeling, right? So it becomes an illusion of a sensation that you are moving your arms in the air as opposed to what's happening, we think, in twitching when you actually are getting uh, feedback that is, that is changing brain activity. So um, I think that's... What was surprising to us is that we saw this system functioning as early mm -hmm. as we found it. So in your, your opinion, then, the, the, the twitching feedback is really a signal that is closely driven by the, the, the muscles themselves, yes. while the corollary discharge is more based on, let's say, a forward model that is making predictions about what you were supposed to do or what you are doing, etc. This is, this is sort of the, the transition that you see there. Yeah, I mean, we think it's going, going to be a... It, it, you know, the... We haven't identified the source of the signal that is shutting off 
is gating that activity during wakefulness. But we suspect it's going to be tightly related to exactly what you said about something related to a forward model. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to, you know, we suspect a few areas, but we haven't established But it yet. might mean that it also can be a cascade of, of incrementally more prediction-oriented feedback signals yes. as opposed to just two different systems. So, so what side are you there in the interpretation? Well, it's all one system with different states. So, you know, the the whole system is simply being engaged differently when you're awake versus when you're asleep. So when you're awake, certain, I mean, we don't know the full range of of parts of the brain that are active. Uh, We know a lot about sleep circuitry, but not nearly enough. But, you know, we're getting to a point now where we can say that, you know, with respect to certain aspects of the motor system, it is being engaged differently during wakefulness than it is during sleep. And... Uh, understanding what we're trying, we're trying furiously to understand in the lab right now is what are the what are the critical parts of that circuit that are responsible uh, for these differences between the states. So the the claim, just to be clear in my mind, is that when you generate an, a motor command when you're awake, a copy of that command uh, goes to a part of the brain, which then uses that to compute the sensory experiences I might expect as a consequence of that movement. Right. And then the ascending sensory signals are matched with that prediction. And anything that I have been able to predict then gets, you know, cancelled out mm-hmm. and doesn't go up to my brain. That's right. Now, when I'm asleep and I twitch, wherever that motor command is coming from, I'm not going to send a copy to this comparator system mm-hmm. so that any sensory signal that's coming in is going to carry on right up to, say, cortex. So... Although I initiated the movement, I still get the feedback as if I hadn't, you know, as if as if it moved separately. That's right. That, that's the claim. <coughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think the the further claim that you're making is that that's useful because it helps then uh, parts of the brain to self-organize, perhaps, uh, because the sort of activity-dependent aspects of development, you need to know that you have muscles out there that. Uh, are working and operating and that have feedback signals. That's, that right? a, that's a wonderful um, synopsis of, of exactly right. what I'm saying. And, and I, and I want to, you know, to, to try to drive this home uh, to a listener. You know, remember I started with certain types of anomalous individuals, whether it was that Johnny Eck who was missing his two hind legs or that the dogs who were missing their two forelimbs or hind legs. That sort of adaptability is not something that you can program in. You can't say to the brain, you know, before you know that you're going to have, you're not going to have two limbs and, and now you're going to remap the brain. The, the, the point I try to make is that whether you're born atypically as a dog with just two forelegs or two hind legs, or you're, you're a typically born dog with four, um, with four legs, you need to map the body you have, not the body you're supposed to have. And Really, what happens in development is no matter whether you have a typical body or an atypical body, the same exact developmental processes are going to be involved in making sense of your body and in mapping your body and in making it a functional system. You know, we've lost sight of the, you know, in the 19th century, one of the biggest things were these, you know, freak shows and sideshows, as they were called at the time, the Bartholomew Fair in, in England, where all these different anomalous people and animals 
would be displayed. And people could see for their own eyes uh, how amazing people could be, so-called armless wonders, people who could use their feet to sew and to play the piano and to play the violin and, do all, and, and shuffle a deck of cards, things that most people imagine you could never do with your feet. And yet, if you're born without arms, you learn how to use your feet in very unique yeah. ways. And I think this aspect of plasticity in a developing system is something that, we, that I just you know, like to emphasize in this context. But no, and this, so, so, so now we have the, the concept sort of clear and also how these different control systems would then work together with respect to feedback from twitches and from an efference copy. Um, now we can start to look also more at the structures that underlie this, right? And, and one of the first structures you, you pointed out there was the red nucleus, which is mm -hmm. a brainstem motor nucleus. And you see then the red nucleus as both the trigger of, a, of twitches and the the recipient of this first level of feedback from the twitch is this really the first station in this whole cascade? The, the first station is probably a sensory motor loop within the spinal cord itself, but the one the first one within the brain is going to be the red nucleus and all of its associated structures. So the red nucleus is one of the most important, most studied of these structures. But what's really interesting is that you know people have looked comparatively at different animals with weird morphologies, you know, like an elephant. And what happens is that the trunk is actually controlled by a near a nucleus that's near the red nucleus. So different animals with different structures have different emphases on different parts of that of that of those brain areas. But the red nucleus is certainly part of it. It's important for twitching. If we lesion that area, twitching goes down uh, precipitously, and it's also involved, of course, in waking motor activity. Mm -hmm. So it this is a this is a nucleus that's going to do one sort of firing pattern when the animal's awake and it's going to do a very different kind of firing pattern when the animal is asleep. Um, so the same same basic system is being manipulated for different purposes at different times of the day. But on the brainstem we also have other motor nuclei like you might find motor in particular formation or the pedunculopontine pontine mm -hmm. nucleus. So do you see the red nucleus as then a specialized nucleus for twitch let's say control, or is it just one among several at that level of brain organization? So if you lesion the red nucleus, not only do you not, not, only do you not wipe out all twitching, but you, your effect is only temporary, so that there are other parts of the brainstem that can make up for it. There are multiple sites in the brain that are responsible for producing twitching, because the red nucleus is, you know, plays a bigger role with the forelimbs than it does with the hind limbs, and there are going to be other areas that are going to play a role for different types of movements. And so what we're really talking about is a network of premotor nuclei that are interacting to produce and interacting with the cerebellum as well to produce the full range of movements that we're capable of. Mm -hmm. So then what's, what's the next level? So now we close the loop over the red nucleus. And, and indeed, now you mentioned cerebellum. Do you see now the cerebellum again talking to the red nucleus to trigger twitches at the different spatial temporal scale? Uh -huh or as a structure now processing the feedback signals that come from the twitches generated by the red nucleus? So we, we think that the, the twitches are going to play a role in shaping the cerebellum, but we haven't seen any evidence yet that the cerebellum is affecting twitching. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've done this by, you know, by lesioning the output nucleus of the cerebellum. But that work is still ongoing, so we haven't published that yet. That's still happening. So the cerebellum, though, is certainly part of this whole process. How it actually shapes twitching... We have not yet established that. But you did show that that the, the twitch correlates very strongly with a complex spike-like response in the cerebellum. Absolutely. At least at the multi-unit level yes. in the cerebellar cortex. The, so is that the link that you... Yes, well, the cerebellum, the cerebellum, the Purkinje cells in the cerebellum are definitely paying attention to twitches. It's a, twitches are a very strong driver 
of cerebellar activity. And we're also recording from the deep cerebellar nuclei, which are the output nuclei, and they also are strongly um, receiving um, information about twitches. So the whole system is very much attuned to what's happening with these uh, twitches during REM sleep. But then you move up to other, that's that's another sensory motor loop that gets closed. But that uh, runs over the inferior olive, essentially. And, and it goes back to the red nucleus. So the, out, the, de- the deep cerebellar nuclei project back to the red nucleus mm-hmm. and presumably is modulating its output. Mm-hmm. And all of these systems have to be, you know, to mapped, mapped in a topographically organized way so that... Um, a signal coming out of the red nucleus is going to activate the forelimb, and then the forelimb is going to feed back and affect certain parts of the cerebellum, which is going to go back and affect a certain part of the red nucleus exactly. that's, that produced the signal mm-hmm. in the first place. If you don't have that kind of convergence of output and input, you're going to have a disorganized motor system. But is that the example of the comparator also that Tony talked about earlier in your mind? Um, the comparator is really more about what happens when you're awake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but still you have to train it up. You do and have, you have to, to keep it. it in sync with your skeletal muscle system. And I think it's still a mystery. You know, the relationship between I can't, I mean, we have to be careful because we don't have any information about how that comparator works, how it's being trained up, and whether or not it, it, whether or not wake movements are part of the training process or whether twitching is doing that, the work for that. We still don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty far from answering right. it probably. But no, you did, you did mention that so we see complex spikes. There'll be a signature of inferior olive involvement. And also changes in the simple spikes of Purkinje cells, which would suggest that we have mossy fiber inputs to the Purkinje cells, also conveying information on the twitch. So That's how would right. should we now the inferior olive is usually seen as conveying error signals right. and driving learning in the cerebellar cortex. So that would mean that we actually have two inputs coming from the red nucleus induced twitches into the cerebellum, and one is in let's say a sensory state, and the other one is more an error. So could we interpret this as the first one reflecting the initiation of the, of the twitch and the second one uh, reflecting, let's say, the recurrent feedback we're getting from the execution of the twitch, driving fear all of the error signal, or you, you, you would at this point not try to differentiate so specifically. Things get really tricky uh, when you start so the, the concept that the inferior olive is, is, is computing error signals comes from work in adults. And it's possible that that concept can be imported, you know, with, with precision into development. But it's also possible that the role of the inferior olive changes developmentally. So it, it's conceivable, I think, in, in our mind, that really what's happening with the inferior olive is you're still setting up the topography of the cerebellum. So that what you're getting is an, a signal from the inferior olive which is whose only purpose at that age is to line up with the sensory input that's coming from the twitching limb or whatever, and then you have a convergent input that allows a cell in the cerebellum to say, oh, I just got a signal that comes from this part of the red nucleus and this part of the body, and they're all linked together. If that linkage process is what development is about, that could be, that could be it. Mm-hmm. And remember, the cerebellum at these ages is, is extremely depleted in terms of its complexity. It had, there are no granule cells or parallel fibers that have yet emerged. And you have this opportunity to simply converge inputs. And that may be the functional role of the inferior olive at this age. Well, it's interesting because it might actually also help the cerebellum, which is in that stage also developing very rapidly, yes. to, to obey a certain somatotopy. Mm-hmm. Because this is actually one of the characteristic features of, of the cerebellum and the climbing fiber inputs in it, that you have multiple somatotopic maps of the body that, of course, you have to lay down in some way, and your twitching signals might be essential to actually get that done. That's exactly what we think is the is the key about that. Whether there are other functions about the inferior olive or any part of the system that we're missing, 
by virtue of our methods or anything else, you know, that's something we have to we have to take care and make sure about. But as of, you know, given our methods and given what we've seen so far, um, we think it's mostly for a somatotopic organization at this stage. Okay, but that would imply that then for adults that have a somatotopic organized cerebellum, the twitching signals would not be really having a strong impact on cerebellum anymore. Is that the case? Well, the answer, the, the short answer is we, nobody knows. Okay. And and the, the longer answer is that um, that you not only have to develop and refine systems, but you have to maintain them and you have to repair them. And so it's conceivable that what happens in adulthood is maintenance and repair. And it also could be that when we do certain types of skill learning, learning a, to play a piano, for example, that you could actually engage some of these um, these mechanisms again in, in distinct ways. Has this ever been looked at? Absolutely not. So we do not know the answer to that. It's conceivable that twitches are important for early development. They go away and they're not heard from again from a functional perspective. But it's also possible that we've been missing out on a very important aspect of, of adult um, function. So, the, I mean, twitches could have multiple functions, and I think, mm-hmm. so I think you're saying that. I mean, if we go back to our robotics analogy, then uh, I think you've already mentioned the fact that a twitch could help me keep my joints free mm-hmm. so that if I don't use my arm for a while, it could seize up. So a twitch could he- give me some flexibility. Uh, a twitch could uh, let me know that my uh, control system is working, you know, sort of a... I need to know that when I command an instruction, the arm will actually move. And, right. You know, we do this in the lab all the time. You know, can Icup still move his fingertip? We send a small movement, and it works. Uh, something like a twitch could allow you to configure the pattern generation system. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, in terms of where the primitives come from, they have to self-assemble in some way, and they could assemble by making, you know, just fire a few neurons, you get some movement, and then you. You're, you figure out that if you fire these groups of neurons together, you get a more complex movement or two limbs move together, that sort of thing. So, uh, And that, uh, in robotics, people have used this sort of motor babbling to uh, try and work out how to control your body. So mm-hmm. you, know, you can learn to, to move a robot arm to a point in space by sending different random commands to the joints of the arm and seeing what happens and building up a map that way. So, um, and then I think you were emphasizing in your talk about uh, twitches generating sensory feedback to the brain. And then that's another, uh, I mean, that, that's similar in a way to this learning how to control the arm. But mm-hmm. would you say it's the same thing or uh, another thing? I think it's in the same ballpark. I think yeah. that we're talking about a similar class of, of ideas. What, you know, the motor babbling idea, I think, is, is a, it's a form of exploration. Yeah. And I'm talking here about using twitching as a form of exploration, too. The details may or may not be critical, you know, so the, the but, you know, we're in a, in a robot system, you have a much more, you, it's a much more low noise system, right? And it, typically compared to a, a, a biological system, is that a fair thing to say? Fewer sensory input. <laughs> yeah, I would say yeah. so. Okay. okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so, the, so the, the challenge for a biological system is to reduce the noise. You have multiple modalities, you know, multiple, so many peripheral receptors, so many different things happening at the same time. Everything, all these different things you need to organize in order to, to, to figure out what's going on. And, of course, you can program the motor babbling to be just move this arm in this way. And it could be that the biological system has to solve that problem differently, perhaps by going into a state like sleep. Um, but I don't see any reason why you can't model that very idea um, in, a, in a robotic situation. Well, you know, in every, every robot has a massive problem always with calibration. Before you do anything, 
always first, okay, we have to calibrate that the robot really knows where its limbs are because otherwise things will go dramatically wrong, mm -hmm. right? So, so you spend a lot of time these calibration issues, which are often taken for granted and not really seen as part of the solution. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what you're describing here is also the brain's calibration system to stay synchronized with its body. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, my idea of a perfect world is where roboticists take take these ideas seriously, um, sort of along the lines of what I was... My yeah. perfect my world colleague. looks very different, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, 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 I, was, I was a morbid idealist when I was a child, but now I care about this is I'm one thing only, you know. Um, Life has changed a lot. That's right. I've become very narrow in my perfection ideals. Uh, but <laughs> he, was, he just was obedient roboticists, you know. Yes, my idea of a perfect world is roboticists take these ideas seriously. But seriously, I mean, it, I, I would become pretty close. For me, I think. <laughs> but now, now so so now, so we, we have so, some clear ideas. Also, we have the beginnings of a circuit diagram, if you want, how these signals play play out. But now what you also showed, which is really very curious, is that you really can see a very strong difference of how these, these twitch signals might actually impact uh, thalamus, cortex, and hippocampus mm -hmm. in wakefulness and sleep. And what, what you showed there, which, which I found very surprising, is indeed also these, these twitch signals, you, you, you can show like very strong responses in thalamus and cortex. So, so how dominant are those signals? Uh, very dominant. They are the most, the, the signals that we see in twitching in a cortex and in the parts of thalamus we've looked at, which are, you know, the parts of thalamus that process sensory input, they are arguably more activated during REM sleep than they are during any other stage of, of these animals' lives. Now, again, we are not looking at animals freely moving in a nest. Uh, and I think it's very important to say that because, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that go on in an animal that's engaging in its environment in a more natural way than we are able to pick up at this stage. But... Nonetheless, in an animal under our conditions, the, the activity that we see is so precisely associated with twitching and so not, you know, and so shut off uh, during wakefulness that that tells that that gave us the clue to start look, thinking about this coronary discharge situation. So if we had if we had gone immediately to a more naturalistic setting, we would have never seen the pattern of activity that we saw and we would have never been able to dissect out this aspect of the circuit. But the thalamus and cortex are um, very different. I'm talking about sensory motor cortex. Mm -hmm. We've recorded from visual cortex, and it has a lot of the same activity patterns, but in that situation, it's driven by retinal waves. And the retinal waves are not occurring during sleep or wake. They're just they're happening on their own cycle. And so there are parts of development that have no tie uh, to the sleep-wake cycle, as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. we, have, we do see activity in visual cortex that is independent of the retinal input, that is associated with sleep mm -hmm. um, that we haven't. Uh, that we're but what you essentially see is in sleep, if I have a twitch, you will see a spindle like associated response with yes. a very short latency after the twitch in thalamus and cortex. Right. About, or, 100, 100, about 100 milliseconds, give or take. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but that, how do you interpret that, 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 that spindle response? This is low frequency, high amplitude. Yes. So, what's it doing? Well, you know, in the adult literature, people talk about spindles playing an important role in memory consolidation. But here we're talking about movement-related activity. It, it appears that what makes cortex homogeneous from a functional perspective is it doesn't matter what kind of input you have to the cortex. It's going to show a spindle. The first thing it shows is a spin, this, this, this oscillation, this little, you know, reverberation in the, in, the, in the circuit. But it is accompanied, certainly we've seen at older ages, 
by unit activity, by actual neuronal firing. So it's not just the, the local field potential. You also mm-hmm. have the action potentials accompanying it. Um, but how that the spindle plays a role in actually altering circuitry, mm-hmm. we don't know. Would you, would you see it as a reset signal? Because basically what's happening, if you pump so much energy into a, a small volume of cortex, you will entrain all the neurons in that volume. And whatever these guys are integrating, you really reset that. It's gone, mm. right? You mean you don't mean resetting in the in the oscillation sense of resetting? You mean well, you you actually you, you will, you're just resetting all these neurons to the same state essentially, right? It, it's possible. We've never. I mean, we don't have any evidence for that something like that yet. And and but one thing that you see early in development that's so striking is that the the cortical activity is so quiet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's like the stillest of water, and then a twitch happens, and it's just a little ripple. Mm-hmm. in the surface and then it goes away back to you know and if you record we what we need to do is to sort of get at what you're asking about is really record from a much larger population of neurons mm-hmm. to get a better sense of what the population activity of those neurons are and um there's been some work by uh by yuri busaki's group on that going back 10 years but there needs to be more of that sort of work mm-hmm. to really see what's going on more dynamic but, but now the if because i i think for your model to 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 work, um, I would expect that that you want to show is that I trigger my spindle, uh, my my twitch, I get a recurrent response via spindle, and now learning something at the cortical level because I'm actually wiring in or rewiring my cortical control over that little set of of muscle fibers. Yes, well, that's one dimension of plasticity that may be important. But another dimension, and that's what I tried to highlight at the end, was just that cascade of activity from area to area to area to area. Mm -hmm. And so what you may actually be doing, and this could be one of many possible functions, is that you're, you're really connecting up these individual pairs of areas so that an area fires and then a very high probability of that uh, of a neuron in the next area, that is what allows for the sort of Hebbian process of saying, you know, now I'm talking to you and we're part of the same system. We, we belong to the same club. And, the, and you, you don't belong to my club. You're, you're not part of the right forelimb. You're part of the right hind limb, mm-hmm. or, or you're just another part of the body, and I don't mm-hmm. care about you. So if you're, if you're, you know, the process of developing these systems, these topographic systems, involves not only saying what, what, who, who I belong to, but who doesn't belong to mm-hmm. me, and that process across areas may be mm-hmm. just as important what's happening as what's happening within a given area. Okay, that's but, but, that but that too, yeah, sure because what you're saying is, look, what I do now, I'm twitching. I, I generate a strong response in my thalamus. Um, this is now driving cortical volume, and now I get some ripple going through my cortical network, which allows as neurons associated with that twitch to be linked together. This exactly. Is, this is that's, what you're saying. I think that's a perfect yeah? extension. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And however, the alternative could be to say, well, when you twitch, just ignore it. Reset the cortex, whatever's going to happen, we're going to ignore it because we're just twitching. It's completely meaningless. Mm-hmm. So how can you how can you refute that interpretation? I can't refute it. I can only use, I mean, you know, as I, like I said, I mean, you know, I've been trying to be skeptical about the possible, you know, there's always the possibility that a system does things and it has no functional importance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to keep that. Perhaps that has to be your, your null hypothesis all the time. And that had to be mine, you know, until very recently. And what convinced me that that wasn't the case was, first, the fact that twitch-related information is getting into the brain and wake-related information is not. But also, secondly, 
um, the sheer enormity of the activity we're talking about here. So, you know, there's a big emphasis in psychology and neuroscience about the quantity of input being an important player in developing developing systems. And I don't see how you can avoid the fact that hundreds of thousands of twitching twitches are happening every day and activity is happening throughout the entire brain that is so profound. It would be extraordinary to me if this was not functionally important for the if, if the nervous system could actually ignore all of that activity. Mm-hmm. I, I don't I, that would seem to be unprecedented mm-hmm. in terms of uh, and it's so it's not just activity, it's highly structured activity with real information content. It seems to me the brain is in the process of making sense of information, not ignoring it. So um, I would just would be stunned if it, at this point. It would there, be perhaps some uh, analysis of the spatiotemporal patterns would help that. I don't know how far you've gone down this route. But, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, uh, you might hope to see that all the different potential uh, ways in which you could uh, move a particular muscle would be explored mm-hmm. uh, uh, over a period of time. Yes. Rather than just one, because you, you you perhaps want to imagine that your motor maps and cortex are seeing the full range of potential ways of controlling that system, and maybe also to say to it, look, you've been doing this action a lot today, you know, remember there are these other actions that you could do, and make sure you retain space for those. Um, I think that's that's a great point, and we have made some inroads on that issue. Um, we've been doing some uh, filming of, of of rat pups when they are in a harness, so we're filming them from below. And we're looking at, if you imagine looking from below of, a, of a, the tip of a limb, that limb is going to occupy different parts in a two-dimensional space that you can see from below. And what is very striking that you see is that when the animals wake up and they're kicking, their, their movements as you follow them, you know, represents a very small part of space compared to the twitches themselves, which are filling up almost like a spherical right. and elliptic elliptical region around that mid-rest point. And that tells me, along the lines of what you're saying, that these animals are really exploring the full range of biomechanical mm-hmm. possibilities of their limbs. Well, there's another aspect of this, actually, which we often ignore. Often, often we think about our bodies as if it's a robot, right? But that's actually not really the case, because once you drive the same muscle fiber uh, frequently, you deplete it of, of glycogen, it will start to get fatigued, and you must start to recruit other muscle fibers to maintain that same movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever ran a marathon, but you'll discover how many different gates you can generate if you run a marathon, at least at a decent speed. So um, so the point here is, and it, this might be also an exploration of alternative, let's say, muscle fiber groups that can be recruited into a functional unit. So the point is, if you would only depend on what you really use during the day, you might also, in some sense, set yourself up for a fall because you become highly specialized and you cannot go for, let's say, alternative movement patterns anymore, recruiting associated or alternative muscle fiber groups. I think that's a great point. And, and there, are, there are similar phenomena where you could, in addition to what you're talking about of depletion, but also if you put a restriction on somebody's movements and you how quickly people can then go to an alternative way of doing things, you know, you stick a cork in your mouth, and you can figure out another way to to, to voice, uh, you know, what you want to talk Shall about. Shall we try that? <laughs> <laughs> but so I, I think the, the that's an the on the online motor plasticity that we have is extraordinary. And where does that come from? Even when you have never experienced something before, you very quickly can figure out how to get around that that barrier. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be right you know, because similar. imagine you would have to figure out at that point in time how to innovate your muscle uh-huh. in order to drive it in some alternative pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
I think you, you, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you thought it would be difficult to block twitches. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the sort of some of the obvious experiments where you prevent animals having twitches and then you look for deficits right. are, are not going to be easy to do. Uh, but are there other ex, ex, um, experiments that you're trying to do which will more directly show a causal link between the twitch and some of these benefits that you think are, are going to have? This has been an incredibly frustrating part right. of doing this work. I mean... You know, for the people who are looking at the development of the visual system and you have retinal wave activity, the retinal wave activity, this is at a time of their of, of an animal's life when they have no wake, they, they're not able to receive light, so it's just retinal, it's spontaneous activity, has nothing to do with light. And I envy them the ability to stick a, you know, a, a needle in the eye, sorry, that sounds a little gross, and inject a drug that simply blocks all that activity and look at the consequences. We can't do that. I mean, first of all, what we're looking at is a sensory motor system that has these loops, and we're looking at a system that is specific to sleep, whereas retinal wave activity is not. So we have a double problem that uh, that people working on pure sensory systems just don't have, and that has proven to be a, uh, an incredible barrier to nailing down something. So instead, what we've done is we've relied on converging evidence. And we've tried to look at, you know, sort of circling the drain of all of all the various things that we might predict based upon, you know, our, our hypotheses. And we are trying to get at this issue. And we have tried to use things like optogenetics. But there are limits uh, for our system in using it. I won't go into the details, but there are, um, it's not as easy as it is, for example, if you're doing adult work. Right. So um, I never thought I would say you know, optogenetics is easy, but you know, but it's relatively harder to do in an animal that and that's uh, very young. So there have been these these impediments to to solving, you know, this this problem of function once and for all. Um, but I think we're going to get there. We have ideas. We're gonna we have certain sorts of conditioning or learning paradigms that we've thought about being able to employ. And I think I'm hopeful in the next two or three years we'll we'll nail it down. And is there some uh, follow-through or crossover into sort of uh, treatments? Are there people for whom, you know, maybe kicking more in their sleep would <laughs> well, give you them know, some benefit? So we just got funded by the Gates Foundation to, to, to branch out and to start looking at uh, uh, human-infant development. And we want to know, first of all, you know, how much do human-infants twitch? And also, are there individual differences? And ultimately, the reason why uh, the the whole point of this particular project um, was to conceive of using twitching as an early and sensitive indicator of developmental disorders. Might you know a lot of these psychiatric disorders? Some might argue every psychiatric disorder or developmental disorder has a motor component to it. Sometimes the motor components are enormous and have been largely ignored. Autism has a huge motor component. Schizophrenia has a huge motor component. And the question is, where do these problems come from? Well, if they start as developmental problems, then we should know what's going on, you know, developmentally. And it's conceivable that how the motor system develops, which is so important to the problems that, that autistic kids have or, or schizophrenics. I mean, if you understood whether or not there are problems in the de- early development of the sensory motor system, the early organization of corollary discharge systems, um, that we might gain a foothold either into predicting and then ultimately uh, treating, better treating these sorts of these sorts of problems before they become full blown. That would be the, you know, the, the the pie in the sky kind of dream for this sort of thing, and um, and that's exactly what we're we're trying to do. So individual differences could provide a really important clue to that sort of thing. And I talked a little bit today about autism and and the role that that 
um, that the cerebellar system may have in that. And, and so, you know, we don't pay a lot of attention to uh, how healthily our infants are sleeping, you know, um, but the environment for sleep could be a critical determining factor for a lot of these things. Now, we have quite an interest in stroke because we think that if, if we can have any impact in, 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 in the neuropathology, stroke should be the first one because it's the simplest one, right, having a hole in your brain. But now, in stroke patients, would you see more twitching? So we have a study that we're starting, that we've been starting. We have, we're waiting for our first patient in humans. Uh, we're, we're aiming to look at their sleep patterns immediately post-stroke. Mm-hmm. There are two ways to think about this. One would be that, you know, you, one reason why stroke is so, so problematic, you know, massive cortical stroke and very problematic paresis, as you know. The, the one way to think about it is that we're out of luck because we're older. I mean, I'm not talking here about perinatal stroke, just adult stroke. And we're, we're out of luck because we don't have access to the same mechanisms as adults as we did when we were infants. You know, everybody knows that, that infants are able to recover from these things much more uh, than, than adults can. Well, why can infants recover so much more quickly? I would argue that there are a variety of reasons. One of them could be because of the nature of how they, they're still in the process of developing these systems. They're still more plastic. The other possibility, though, that that I think needs to be looked at is the one where you're actually able to recruit these older mechanisms under conditions of distort, disrupted maps. So now stroke may be too high up in the hierarchy to recruit that. So it's possible. What happens when you have amputation and you have to learn how to use your remaining arm in a functionally new way? Or what happens after peripheral nerve damage where you've lost some control and those nerves are growing back. Under those conditions, it's conceivable that the nervous system is actually able to detect a very dramatic change in the relationship between the peripheral part of your body, your limbs, and your brain, and could re-engage the process of spontaneous activity. And what if it's possible that some of us are better able to engage that process than others Mm -hmm. of us? Then you could have individual differences in recovery from these sorts of things. Those are the kinds of questions I want to address, because if, if... you know, even if, if it's partially right, there could be a way eventually to use, just like people are recording from, neurosurgeons are recording in many centers now across the country, including at the University of Iowa, um, uh, in epileptic patients with chronic electrodes in the, in the, in the cortex. It, it would be possible, ultimately, to implant electrodes into the brainstem and to stimu- simulate what's happening in early development and mm-hmm. to basically re-bootstrap that system from the inside out. Mm-hmm. So if we could recruit twitching, if twitching turns out to be important, it's it's not mm-hmm. crazy science fiction to think that you could put in electrodes into the brainstem and and stimulate different parts of it and reinvigorate mm-hmm. uh, the development of the but system. How about starting with just direct muscle stimulation? Well, that might work to some extent. I mean, we saw from Brian Kolb's talk that peripheral stimulation through stroking can have an important effect on plasticity. But I think that if if we're right about the role that twitching plays as a self-generated movement, it may be important for the nervous system to both produce the movement and to get the feedback itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Still a very interesting open question. So um, another issue that I was curious about, so if we're now thinking about using twitching to set up our control system um, for, for motor control, another important aspect of motor control is its rhythmicity. Right? For instance, there are these ideas around different people that also motor control is very much segmented in time at a certain frequency, let's say 10 hertz or what have you. Would you see similar kinds of patterns or patterning in how twitches are generated and how does that vary over over development? 
if at all? Um, so we're we're looking at that issue right now, and um, we're still analyzing data. We have we're we're very interested now in a variety of different rhythmic patterns that we see, and um, and what we're primarily seeing as of right now at these particular ages and in the parts of the brain we're looking at is that the most rhythmic activity occurs when the animal is not moving at all. And then what happens when the animal starts to twitch is that those those rhythmic patterns disappear and then the animals stop twitching or stop moving and the and the rhythmic patterns commence again. Mm-hmm. But um, and we also see evidence that you know at one age for example we're recording from the red nucleus and we see rhythmic activity uh, or actually I should say very little rhythmic activity but just a four-day difference from eight days of age to 12 days of age, all of a sudden, all of this rhythmic activity is coming in. And if we anesthetize or inactivate the, the cerebellum, we get rid of all of that. So it appears as if the cerebellum, just that four-day period, is now providing rhythmic activity into the red nucleus. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to follow that entire circuit to understand mm. how that occurs. But it's a very dramatic effect. The difference between recording from the red nucleus of an 8-day-old and a 12-day-old is night and day in so many different dimensions. So that turns out to be a really interesting, potentially sensitive mm-hmm. period for the development right. of the system. But now if we, if we talk about seeing or not seeing this kind of rhythmic activity, mm-hmm. it, it, it also, the, I mean, if you, if you now look at the awake brain, of course, it's configured in a very different kind of dynamical state. The, the, the way the thalamus will operate is very different. Uh, right now, it will be much more in, let's say, a mode where it is passing more high-frequency uh, responses. It's not hyperpolarized so much. So it might be the case that you still see these kind of low-frequency events, but they're masked, if you want, or much more attenuated because of the ongoing activity of the thalamocortical system. So is that is that the way you, you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think, but but we're still very early in the process of mm-hmm. trying to understand this. I mean, the the motor system, the the, the actual overt behaviors of a, of these infant rats. Um, I mean, if you think about a you know like a third trimester human infant, the behaviors are fairly limited in their complexity, and and um, and so and the thalamocortical contributions are minimal. So we're not seeing a lot in terms of the complex rhythms that you see later in development when behaviors become more complex. Right. And so the way you describe the system, even though we're talking about the learning, the development of, of, of a sensory motor system and motor control, in the, in the motor control literature, people are very much carried away by these more, let's say, pseudo-formalistic perspectives, like it's all Bayesian and it's inference and it's forward models and so on. And some of these things have given us, let's say, a handle in certain aspects of motor control. But what, what's interesting is that in your analysis of the system, you don't really seem to... To, to build on those constructs. So they don't seem to give you leverage in trying to understand the development of this motor system. So so how, how, how do you see what you do and your data and also your interpretation relate then to the more standard field of, of motor control? Well, um, it's a great, it's, that's a great and deep question. So yes, the, the, the you know, I've, I've read the literature. I, um, and one thing that always strikes me is there's always a little box that says, you know, prediction. But there's no box that says where that prediction comes from. And I think that is the missing developmental piece. I mean, developmentalists always, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's what we talk about over beer is, is how it gets, it doesn't get integrated into these formal models. Because unfortunately, the formal modeling and from a developmental perspective, there's a very, well, you can tell me, right? How much, how much do you know about a developing model? And I've 
talked to computational modelers about it. Most people I've talked to have not been interested mm-hmm. in modeling it that way. But here's my challenge then to, the, to that community. Wouldn't it be better if we understood how a system develops computationally and in the process added on, right? So no, like, what is the simplest computational aspect of a system? So take take the system we're working on. Wouldn't you want to know whether or not the inferior olive is, is doing an error signal early in development or not? And when it starts to have an error signal, then how when you add that on, what kind of change does that have to the behavior of the animals? And by understanding the development of the system, wouldn't you learn something more about what are the essential computational ingredients to the behavior at each stage and what things are critical, necessary, and what things are not? I think that is missing a missing perspective from from uh, from the computational community. I think we would gain so much from being able to to take development seriously and and try to build these models in a in a way that mimics the developmental process. Right. I, I think uh, something we might touch on before we finish is that uh, that listeners might be interested in is the effect of sleep deprivation. You know, so if uh, you know, if I take smart drugs and I don't go to sleep for a month, am I going to you see You can take some? stupid drugs and do the same thing. <laughs> am I going to see any motor consequences? What would your theory predict? Well, um, I don't know how much... I mean, anybody who's been... who's, who's engaged in self-deprivation for whatever reason uh, probably has noticed that motor coordination is one of the things that goes. You know, you'll stumble around a little bit more, but you also have a lot of perceptual problems. So it, it seems as if from that standpoint, uh, for whatever reason, because it's not really known, you know, what's, what's, what's happening in that situation, but several days of sleep deprivation and you're going to look like, a, you're going to look a bit drunk, um, which is interesting since drunkenness is very much mediated by the cerebellum, but um, <laughs> at least the behavioral component. Um, but, you know, the, the, the experiments that have been done on deprivation have largely focused on the physiological consequences. Um, I, I'm sure there's a, and some aspects of uh, sequence learning and things like that have also been studied. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was a drug that came out about 10 years ago now called modafinil, also known as ProVigil, that people thought was going to be, you know, the great, the great keep you awake drug. Um, but I don't think it's, it's advisable to keep yourself awake on drugs like that. You, you know, do so at your own risk. So, so Mark, and I mean, you are really digging very deep in 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 a phenomenon that that from the outset might look like almost trivial if you look at the brain as a whole, right? Because we think about memory and consciousness or whatever. But now you found that actually, by really understanding the twitch, you actually can really gain a deep insight how brains operate and, and configure themselves. So, if we would like to follow you now in, in that in your tradition, what is Mark's law that we should uh, write on the wall and follow every day? <laughs> Um, just one? I only get one law? Yeah, we're going to have two. No problem. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, the, 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 I'll, I'll say it from a, from a scientist's perspective. You know, it, it can be a bit scary studying something that everybody, everybody uh, considered to be of no consequence. And one of the joys I get out of doing science is to try to do things that people find counterintuitive and surprising. There are risks with that. I mean, it could be that everything we've ever done, you know, turns out to be of no consequence whatsoever, in which case the egg on my face will never come off. But, you know, after you follow the data and you try to generate good hypotheses and you try to keep an open mind as best as you can, and you let you let things go as they have. And and in, in this particular instance, I've, I'm, I, I'm personally relieved at this point. I think it's going to turn out to be 
uh, of of great value. Um, but there's always that possibility you're wrong, and that's just the nature of science. So mm-hmm. I guess my law would be um, we need to encourage risk-taking. You know, I mean, we, it's very easy to, 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 for, for all of us to study the same exact thing, but it's, I think it's also nice to, to enjoy being the first person to study something that, no, you know, not only that people weren't interested in, but actually people thought were of no consequence mm-hmm. whatsoever. And I get, I actually, I, I do get a lot of joy in, in, in sort of digging things up and seeing where they lead and being surprised. Right. So take risk. Mm-hmm. But then, so five years from now, Tony likes traveling. He will, Tony will come visit you. Mm-hmm. And and he he will come and check whether you actually found evidence for a hypothesis you're going to generate for us today. Mm-hmm. So what's what's the most ambitious hypothesis you want to see realized and confirmed five years from now, in your in your program? Well, there are several. So um, one would be that we want to show that that twitches are playing an active role in, in plasticity and the organization of the system. We want to understand uh, what parts of the system are providing the critical inputs that lead to these different. Uh, aspects of modulation. We want, I want personally to understand how twitching changes is, is differentially expressed in different species and, and across the lifespan in different animals. And I want to know, I have, I, I, I want to understand how body morphology, like whether or not you have a trunk or whether or not you have a fin or whether, you know, whatever, uh, how your body, whether or not the, the most important parts of your, of your, of your bodies are the ones that twitch. And then I want to understand, especially in, in humans, whether or not we can, um, we can see that twitching actually can play a role in the maintenance and recovery of function that happens after skill learning, stroke, peripheral damage, whatever, so that it actually plays, might be playing a role in, in those sorts of processes as well. So really just sort of proving the foundation and expanding it into mm-hmm. other domains, I think that's where we need to go. All right, great. Mark Bloomberg, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Fun. But I don't share your utopic dream of a world <laughs> running around with submissive roboticists. I mean, sorry, Mark. Yeah. That was going too far. Uh, little, 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 little weak on the dreaming, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's the price you paid, you know. <laughs> I dream of a world of roboticists. Oh, so beautiful. My ideal world. <laughs> I have been known to uh, engage in hyperbole, so, you know. <laughs> well, you succeeded. <laughs> that was great. Very good. Very yeah, helpful. Thank you. That was, that was fun. Uh, I learned a lot. This was really helpful. So CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.